Hello, my name is Kevin Appel and I'm the chairman of Avondale Corporate and welcome to our podcast, Strategic Acquisitions. We're going to be talking today about acquisitions and how you may follow best practice to make sure they work, uh, probably half an hour or so. I'm joined by our head of strategy, Stuart Millington, who's also bought quite a few companies in his own right, and he's going to be sharing some of his tips and ideas later in the podcast. He's written a really good article, which we're going to extract some items from, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm not commenting between myself and Stuart on which one of us sits in which area there. Uh, we'll, we'll leave you to work that out, depending on what we say. Um, but obviously, the backdrop we're facing in acquisitions, organic growth is looking increasingly difficult for many, many sectors. There are still some growth sectors, tech in particular, SaaS, but the vast majority of business sectors have got a significant headwind caused by the, the budget deficit that the government are carrying, the increase in tax receipts, aging population. So I think we've got to assume that we're going to be facing a world of incredibly slow growth um, in, in the West, certainly. Um, and that means that one way to attack back is to consolidate fragmented markets. So acquisitions really do need to sit central to many board strategies. But unfortunately, lots of people don't have the expertise. Um, they don't have the, you know, the, the board risk mindset to consider them. And they don't have the resources to go at them. So hopefully in this podcast, we can give you a bit of inspiration around expertise and resources to help you offset that very slow organic growth uh, uh, that we're seeing. And debt is still relatively cheap. So acquisitions, we call it the four corners of mergers and acquisitions. Um, if you can get synergy, shareholder value, economies of scale, but also uh, positive market disruption is a really good way to create growth within the business model. But we do make the point, you need to buy right, um, and actually, I was just writing a little article myself on this. Um, obviously, the history of that is return on investment, spreadsheets, and the value play. Make sure you don't overpay. But buying right may not mean that. It depends on your business model and your business sector. Uh, I did want to share the example of uh, Reed Hastings, who went into Blockbuster's video with Netflix uh, some 10, 12 years ago and said, look, 50 million, yours. Blockbusters laughed. Now, the point of the story is sometimes not doing the deal may be the most expensive thing, whatever the value is. So it's not all about value. For us, we think the most important thing is how does it change your business model? How does it place you ahead of the market dynamic for your future customer? Um, but one of the mistakes people make is they don't get clear on that in their own business model. And they haven't got their own house in order in terms of the way their management structure is sorted. So they're not clear on their strategy. And as a result of that, they go, look, we're building balance sheet. We, we need to spend that money. We need to get return on investment. We need to rush out and buy. But because they haven't done that internal analysis of where their business model is going, they're not clear on what they need to buy. So very often when people come to us and say, look, we want you to run an acquisition project, we run it by our strategy team first, and we interrogate the current business model first to see what organic growth opportunities there are, but also understand how that market is changing so that we're buying ahead of that change in marketplace rather than just 
consolidating for scale for the sake of it. If you like what I'm saying is we talked about the four corners of M&A, economies of scale, synergy, shareholder value and positive disruption. And what we're really saying is economies of scale is no, no longer, I mean, it's relevant, but it's by no means the major driver, yet people still see it as. Um, positive disruption is probably the bigger driver for those acquisitions. So what's changing your market and how do we buy right to place ourselves ahead of those changes? Really important. We obviously need to understand our finance. So again, you know, one of the things that we do is we get people to slow down and look at their options for finding financing and funding a deal. Does it mean we're going to need to do it on debt? Does it mean we need to do it on private equity? Um, and what's our cycle on that debt? What's the current debt? Have we got civil loans? How are we going to use uh, a restructure to, 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 to fund the deal? So know what your funding ability is. Know your own house. Get your business model in order. Get really clear what you need to buy by being really clear on the market metrics. And then our premise is, outsource the acquisition finding work. Um, far better to concentrate on your day job. Um, we're not keen on, on acquisition work where people haven't done that homework because the reality is what happens is you tend to find you, you try and talk to too many people and you do it badly. If you get really focused on this, it becomes really clear who you need to buy. Uh, and, uh, and we're talking trade here, but also I think the same applies for private equity that are trying to do a a roll-up, um, and you get really clear that it's probably only 20, 30 companies you really, really should be talking to, and you make sure you target them on every step and level, and stay in touch. People very often get disheartened that the initial approach equals a no, forgetting, of course, that circumstances change. Uh, we, we've got a project at the moment, we're doing a, a sale for, to a large PLC, they were very clear pre-COVID that they weren't going to do a deal and that they were going to double EBITDA before looking at it. And the seller phoned up after COVID and said, ski chalet, far more important, time to go. Um, so we brought it forward by four years. You know, these things happen, people's mindset changes. So, so the trick to strategic acquisitions, be clear who you want to buy and make sure that you go and target them multi-channel but also on a multiple basis to build uh, a relationship um, and building that relationship is about sweethearting them it may be a no not now but if they perceive you as the first port of call for the acquisition because you've charmed them and you've stayed in touch you've shared information you've given them market metrics on acquisitions they will come back to you when it's the right time to look at it uh, and you're more likely to get the right deal so that's some of the stuff I, I'm seeing really from the M&A side. But I'm going to bring Stuart Minnington in, who's head of strategy, and say he's bought uh, for Avender. He's also bought and uh, sold companies in his own right as well. Uh, so, uh, Stuart, you, you've written this article recently, Good, Bad, and Ugly. Congratulations, great title. Uh, I can still picture the Western. Uh, we're all pausing with the guns pointing at each other. But how do you see that fitting in acquisitions? In terms of, I, I think the um, the benefit of the acquisition, everything's of just the growth side, and there is a huge growth. Almost you buy another company, turnover goes up, margin goes up, um, profit goes added on. Um, there are usually some economies of scale, but that's really it should be the minor one. If you're making an acquisition with just that reason, it it should it won't work. Um, it's not enough. Um, if it's properly thought through, so you've defined what you actually want in terms of a profile of the company. 
And as you've said, you'll get it down to quite a small number. Uh, if you end up with a choice of 20 to 30, I think you're doing well. It's normally a smaller number than that you mentioned. Okay. But, you know, the, the, the key thing about this thing is when you're looking at these companies, everybody loves when they're at an acquisition of what can they take from the acquisition. What they should be looking at is what they can give because yeah. the synergy has got to be a two-way street. It's got to be what the acquiring company can do for the core business, but what the core business can do for the acquired company. Now, when you get that two-way synergy going, the benefit really starts humming because it's not just the increase in size. You get the you get greater expertise because if you've bought properly, the acquiring company is a good company. It's got management. It's got expertise. So you've got that as well. You've got access to their client base, uh, potentially access to new markets, um, you've got a natural fact that you can sell your products and services to their clients and their products and services to your clients, which is great. You might be giving access to a new supply chain, which in the, the current climate is very important. Um, and the other thing is you might just be eliminating a key competitor as well. You might be taking out one of the competition, which is always happy. But the things that, thing that people, I think, um, don't think about, which is a benefit, is it gives the management of the acquiring company a massive energy boost it feels really good all of a sudden the business is doing really well it's increased significantly in size it makes a great it really has an amazing effect in terms of lifting the energy of the people and the enthusiasm of the workforce and everything else like that and indeed in terms of handling the integration it's important that it's handled properly with the acquiring company because the the, the you know they're they are concerned because they usually are some redundancies some casualties um you want them on board as fast as possible. Um, and the best thing of all is, if you said it, at the moment, with all the changing circumstances going on, organic growth in many sectors is really, really tough. So an acquisition is, is attractive. But the other thing is there's a huge amount of money out there looking for a home and things to invest in. And if you've got a company with a proven management team, you've been there for a few years, you've got a company that's profitable, it's been well run, that's exactly the sort of business people want to invest in or lend money to. So if you've got a wealth thought through strategy, actually it's a great time to raise money to actually take it on, on board and make advantage of it. I think that's yeah. really important, Stuart. And I, mean, I, I think just to, to share, but you know, we've been, Stuart and I have been SME business experts for a long time. You know, that's companies with, you know, 100K to 5 million uh, EBITDA. But, but actually we think there's a gap starting to show in the sort of sub you know, three or even 500k EBITDA or profit businesses. So the focus is the emerging mid-market from investors and both corporates. And if you're smaller than that, it's becoming increasingly difficult to buy those companies because of the, the compliance, the legal diligence, the red tape, and also the funding. So the trick here is if you are, a, you know, 300k EBITDA business. So don't get me wrong, that's that's high quality. That's, you're making good money. It's not easy to get to that point. But one or two acquisitions starts placing you on the radar. And that's really important. So it could, I think acquisitions could be a method of breaking that social mobility gap that's starting to appear between, if you like, the rich and the poor in the SME sector. Do you have a view on that, Stuart? Yeah, I mean, I think so. The the once you've got the bottom about this is once you've actually got the money available in the, your own uh, account, if you've been sensible, you've got good, consistent profit record, you've probably got a decent balance sheet. 
for the you know for the not there's been many years since you've been able to go out there and borrow significant sums of money either in terms of and it depends on what your plan is do you want to just borrow the money or do you like investors to come in you can get that and all of a sudden you can take that business and you can move it rapidly onwards and upwards um and the thing about this is when you've actually grow it from the base of around about 300,000 you start doubling the profit or 6 700,000 it's not just the profit that goes up is because if you've got the enlarged company the better quality management team you've proven that the management team's got the ability to actually make an acquisition the multiple starts moving up as well so what actually happens is you don't just get the the same multiple on an increased profit figure you often get a higher multiple on the profit on the higher profit figure so it's a double win so it's a great opportunity for companies in that area to actually really accelerate the company and actually not just move the profit up, but move the equity value up considerably. And it's quite interesting what happens also is how many of the target acquisitions, often it's the MD or the senior team in that, that end up running the whole company because they can be more dynamic, but also it may be that you know, this is a way of building that succession for, for you know, the shareholders that are making the acquisition. You know, ultimately, begin with the exit in mind, right? So if you're buying with exit in mind, this can be a really interesting way to resolve your own succession challenges because um, you're buying in that talent. But there is an assumption, isn't there, that the acquirers are smarter than the sellers? Stuart, would you not agree with that? Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's interesting. It's because we're the acquiring... Uh, it's one of the issues that when it goes wrong is because the acquirer seems to get this this problem of, of macho macho man or person if you like is because they're doing the acquiring they're the top dog and all the rest of it and often the company's being acquired it's not because they're not not as good management there could be other plans at place it's time for the major shareholder exit or retire there's lots of things like that and indeed if you take a clearly open mind on it especially as you might be buying a company that's operating in different market sectors it's got different products and services um one of the criteria before you acquire is are you acquiring the management team to go with it because when you buy a company if you think about it really taking it to the basics you're buying the income stream and you're buying the management team that manages that income stream so if it hasn't got a good management team, why would you want to buy it? So by definition, you are getting good quality management. Your challenge is to make sure you identify the good quality managers and make sure that you keep them. Because as soon as you start losing the quality managers from the acquisition, you're starting to lose some of the value you've just paid for. I, I, I mean, I think that's part of the due diligence process. Stuart. We should talk about due diligence because the money is spent on commercial due diligence. But of course, the sellers never let you access that team until the last minute, right? Because of confidentiality. But the other thing that's interesting in that equation is that it may be really difficult to assess the talent of that team because quite often with retiring shareholders, the team won't necessarily have been invested in. So they, they could be a hidden secret, but they've not had the training, they've not had that you know, vision brought to them. So how, how do you get in there to assess that? It's, it's quite a challenge. It, it is, but natural fact is interesting is... Um, this is where there's some hidden costs in making an acquisition, because if you can imagine is when you're looking at an acquisition, you have to look at it in con the context of your own business. So if you use external consultants, they can look at a new business, but they don't really understand your business. So they can't do the whole picture. So by definition, some of the senior management of the acquirer have got to have their time freed up to be involved in the due diligence process to look at it because they've got to assess it when you when you're assessing a company you're really looking at four things you will to, to get it right 
and, and unfortunately, we'll come back to it, but a number of times it goes wrong. But to get it right, the first thing is you have to have a really clearly defined profile of what you're looking for and why. So you need to look at the physical, the fit with the profile. The other thing is you need to look at the, the, the physical and cultural fit. And what I mean by physical is, you know, if you're based uh, in London and the company's in Edinburgh, well, maybe that doesn't actually work. Um, and the other thing is the, is the cultural fit is difficult to get a feel from, but you can start in the meetings, get a feel for what the culture of the company's like what the expertise of the people is like, how they work. And, and you need to get that basic feeling at the outset. Um, the price is important in that people often talk about a sum of money, but really it's the deal structure we're talking about because in the process of the due diligence, you will find areas of risk and the deal structure is modified to manage the risk. So it's actually to reduce the risk. And in actual fact is it's getting the companies being acquired to accept some of the risk because after the acquisition, the management team need to take on responsibility. It could be the renewal of a contract with a major supplier, but you might hold some of the money back until the contract that's due to be renewed next few months is renewed. So there's different ways of handling the deal structure to minimise the risk. And lastly, it's to look at synergies and timing. The, the, the thing that people get wrong here is they they always think they can integrate the company faster than they actually can. And um, I can't, I've heard the phrase used a number of times. People say, we're going to crash the companies together. And every time I hear that phrase, I get the visions of a train wreck with lots of bodies and blood and everywhere. And if you've actually got investors, sometimes the, the management team's under a huge amount of pressure integrated really quickly. But the reality is you need to spend several months really getting to understand the business in detail before you actually integrate it um, to make sure you do it right. And, and it's all, one of the things that can go wrong. And all, Stuart, and it's quite an interesting manoeuvre that we, we recently helped. Uh, the Japanese company Sharp PLC, we did we helped them run an acquisition uh, in the IT space, and they they were actually mainly office machines. And we said buy and hold harmless, and they went with that strategy because they actually knew if they had tried to integrate it overnight, that they would not. You know, you know they weren't going to get a copy of people to sell IT solutions or IT solutions to sell copier overnight. They're very different beasts. Um, and they decided that they, if they integrated overnight, they would actually do themselves more damage than good. Plus, they were too busy on all sorts of other change initiatives. Yeah. So they bought the acquisition because they knew it's where they wanted to go, but they actually decided to leave it growing on its own and look for the synergies on a separate basis rather than merge, which we, we advised them to do. And I think that's a, a trick that corporates are not looking at. Private equity think that way. You know, you buy the portfolio company, you don't disturb it, you let it grow. So corporates have got an opportunity, and there's been some articles, Harvard Business Review wrote one, on why corporates should think more like private equity when they're doing their acquisitions. Yeah. Which I think is really interesting. As part of that growth is interesting. One of the things I've always done when I've acquired companies is I've got, as part of the due diligence, I've got the, the managing director of the company I'm acquiring to write to the top 10 clients. It can be eight clients, it could be 12. It's, it's the, the Pareto rule. It's the clients that are really important. And saying that, you know, they're very concerned about customer service and they wish to always make sure they're improving. So they're, in, they're employing an independent research company to um, talk to their clients about the service they give them to identify as ways they can improve it. Now, I've paid for that research, but what happens is I get back a, a research program from the, the company, the, the clients that matter, that they're actually acquiring, telling me what they think of the service they get from the company and how it could be improved. And it's a massive opportunity. Um, I once looked at acquiring a company 
And uh, the researcher finished an interview and literally walked into the car park, picked up the phone and rang me and said, you need to be aware the third biggest client's about to resign the account. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which was, uh, you know, and, and that, that, that made a huge impact because it effectively when you lose a chunk of margin, you, if you want to maintain your profit, you're into restructuring the company to lose costs. So that was a huge wake up call. And when I spoke to the uh, managing director of the company I was about to acquire about it, he knew the client was unhappy, but hadn't realized it got to that stage. Now, as it was, he literally um, shot up there within a couple of days to see the client. And we actually salvaged the situation. But it also enabled me to put a, a, a section within the deal structure that there was a sum of money withheld and released um, step by step over a period of quarters um, for the retention of that client and the renewal of their contract. And I would never be able to do that before. So as it was, it wasn't necessary, but it minimized my risk. So well, I, think, I think what's really important there, Stuart, actually, you know, come back to due diligence, people just don't spend enough time or money on it. There's a fear, isn't there, within SME, yep. particularly your emerging mid-market. Yeah, oh, we want to keep costs low. Uh, investment buyers don't have that. They're like, we want to chuck money at those. Well, within reason, but, you know, They'll have customer service reputations or, you know, assessments and, and, and so on. Because, yeah, I mean, some of our bigger deals, we've just done one at 45, 50 million. I think the fees on that across all the advisors were 2 million. But so what? It's done right. And it forms the business plan for the next step. Yeah. But the point being is you get to the situation. I mean, you mentioned Harvard before. Harvard did a, um, a study of acquisitions and they found that 70% of acquisitions failed. They didn't meet the objective set. And it's because people try and cut corners. I mean, it's the old joke, isn't it? Leave no corner uncut. Um, making an acquisition has got a lot of costs, and it's not just the buying of the company. You really need some experts there to help you assess it and appraise it. And the other thing is, as I mentioned before, you need to look at a hidden cost, which is you need to free up some of your own senior management team's time to actually spend time in the acquisition, actually living in it, to make sure you thoroughly understand it before you integrate it. And that means actually restructuring some of your management structure. So it's a, it's just a sort of strange hidden cost. But if you do that, the chance of success increases immeasurably. And you, you need to think about this. The acquiring a company, it's probably the biggest expenditure you've ever made in your life. And um, you need to step back and look and say, you know, it's going to cost some money, but I need to do this properly because it's costing a lot of money. And the other thing is just when it goes right, the energy goes up. If you make the acquisition and it goes wrong, the impact it has not just on the company you've acquired, but on your own business is can be pretty damning. It's really, really, um, really important. You take your time and do it properly and make sure you've got the funding to do it properly. Can, can we focus back then, Stu? I'm just mindful time for the podcast, but we, we've, we've called the article that goes with this, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. And I think it's always easier to some of the stuff we're talking about is ends up talking about bad and ugly, right? But, but, the good, I mean, the first point, you've got to be aware of your own risk profile because this is really scary, isn't it? Buying and spending big money is scary, yeah. okay? And you really want to get it right because, you know, oh, my God, you know, but people are doing it and are getting it right. So if I'm listening to this, I'm an owner-manager, help me with that point, Stuart. You know, my risk profile is like, oh, I'm not sure I want to do this. We're making good money. We don't need to. We could fall into a very comfortable lifestyle here. I'm ambitious, but I, I just don't know. Um, and then, you know, reassure me it can be done by. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing is, I mean, to a certain extent, is if you've got a, a board with a number of shareholders, 
risk profile is really important. It's one of the things that people often don't discuss. And quite often when you find you've got directors at a board level disagreeing, they think they're disagreeing over the business proposition. Often you find they're not, it's not that at all, it's they've got different risk profiles. So one may have a high risk profile and feel very comfortable with it. Another may have a low risk profile and just, just as unhappy with the whole concept of what they're actually doing. So, so the whole point about this is to discuss and agree what's what's at risk and how you can minimise the risk at the outset. But you know, unless the board and all the shareholders are on board with doing this and happy to move forward, then it's not going to happen. Someone will find out a way of stopping it. But the point being is, if you to come back, is the benefit is huge if you get it right. But what you just need to do is to find out what are the sensitivities, what is it that make that make people, what aspects of the risk are making people feel uncomfortable, and then talk about how you can minimise and manage that because you can if you take your time. And, and are careful um it's really important and the other thing is even if you've spent a load of money on research you've spent months of time negotiating with someone talking about a deal if you think the deal is wrong at any time if you think it's wrong walk away it, you, you've got to be convinced it's the, it's the right deal otherwise you need to walk away so in terms of managing the risk it often isn't just about managing the risk to make sure the deal goes ahead it's having a, the agreement in advance that if it doesn't meet the criteria you've set, walk away. And, and it's key, actually, the criteria you've set for both the, the fit with the profile, the physical, cultural fit, the deal structure, um, it's got to be in sufficient detail that you can use it as a filter to ensure and say, does this company meet our criteria? If it's all wishy-washy or too general, then it's not good enough. So at the outset, you've got to know your own business well enough and have taken the time to think strategically about what you want to acquire, why you want to acquire it, what you're going to do with it, what you're looking for, a whole list of stuff, so that when you're assessing a company, you can go, yes, it fits or doesn't fit. And that's why when we started to do it, I think that's the great way to circle it back to the point, get your own house in order, it's the business review, what's your business model doing before you start? You know, know yourself before you presume to buy others. But there is a really interesting point, and I don't think people have really thought about it. if you bring that back. If organic growth is so slow, people chuck fortunes at sales and marketing to hit yeah. the organic growth brick wall. And they never seem to worry about the risk of that because it's just what they've always done. Um, and actually, the acquisition may be less risk uh, and a better return and faster. It's so good. you've got to look at where you are, I could come from best within your business model, depending on where you are. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. Do you remember the old joke? I can cut the cost of my marketing in half. The trouble is, I'm not sure which half. Yes. <laughs> well, we're doing a few business reviews. We've got that on a few, haven't we, at the moment? So one of the, one of the things our strategy team is that that business review, what's working, what's not working, get yep. lean, get mean, and then, then maybe yep. look at the acquisitions. Stuart, I didn't leave you with a final word. Um, acquisition, fantastic opportunity. It's a great time. The money's available. Also, with COVID... There's a lot of people out there uh, having difficulty with their businesses, have uh, taken a look at life and decided it's time to move on. So naturally, but there's a lot of companies prepared to sell um, at this moment in time. So it's a really good time to have a good look at this and consider it. Fantastic. Thank you all for listening. Um, do look us up on the website. Email us if you've got any queries. We're always happy to chew the fat and very approachable. Um, so please, please, please contact us. Thank you all.